And we are today uh, in uh, Romans chapter 1. We, a couple weeks ago, we had our introductory lesson to Romans. And last week, we actually started on the text of Romans in chapter 1. And we looked at the first six verses as we observed was only part of the first sentence <laughs> of Romans. So, uh, I know I'm a slow teacher, but it isn't often that I never get through the first sentence. <laughs> but last week we didn't. Uh, because the sentence, the opening sentence does go through chap- verse 7. Not chapter 7, but verse 7. Uh, but let's, let's just read uh, beginning in verse 1. And today I hope to get through verse 12. Uh, so let's just read those first uh, 12 verses. Uh, and then we can kind of review... Uh, and you'll notice how diligent uh, Hal was to preserve the notes from last week. So you've got a cheat sheet up there so you could answer these questions or review. But I was tempted to erase it and make you do it from memory, but I'll leave it up there. <clears throat> but beginning in verse 1 of Romans 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called the saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay? So, as I mentioned last week, we looked at the first six verses. And uh, what do you recall that we talked about last week? Okay. Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. He's addressing both groups in Rome. I should mention, and we'll pick this up more as we go along, that they really are, it is dominantly a Gentile group with a minority of ethnic Jews within the group of believers of the church in Rome. So, predominantly, as we're going through Romans, he's addressing Gentiles, but periodically you'll see him, uh, it seems like he's addressing uh, ethnic Jews Uh, at various points, but predominantly he seems to be addressing Gentiles. In this passage, he's clearly trying to address both. What else? When he identifies himself, he lists his qualifications to speak to them. And the first one is that he's a slave to Christ, and then that he's an apostle, and 
So you kind of know, okay, the first thing is, I'm a psychopath, so that kind of, I found that interesting, that if I was trying to introduce and impress people, I wouldn't start with them. I'm a slave, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is an important part of his credential, isn't it? Unless he's a slave of Christ, we don't want to listen to his uh, supposed apostleship. That's right. Great. What else? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, what he's referring to there is that uh, many commentators uh, uh, suspect that verses 3 and 4 are a very ancient Christian liturgy, uh, uh, some kind of a, a hymn or a recitation of some sort that was a, a way that, uh, that believers would express their, uh, their convictions regarding who Christ was within the context of the early church. Oftentimes, liturgies and things like that have been used throughout church history because it's only been within the last few centuries that most Christians are literate. And so, in order to facilitate people being able to remember biblical truth, uh, things, like, uh, things like liturgy and hymns and, and things like that were, uh, were written so that so people could memorize the, the truths of the gospel and the truths of scripture. Uh, often, also, it's an, uh, one of the reasons for icons and the artistry that we see in the history of the church, the pictures that were drawn on the picture on the walls of churches or the stained glass windows were all ways of helping people who were illiterate and didn't have, couldn't read the Bible ways for them to visualize and to think through and recall the truths of Scripture. So those things all played a very vital role in the uh, in the equipping of the church throughout history, and, and church liturgy was one of those things. What else? Verse 5 mentioned that concerning the phrase obedience of faith, that some commentators think that that means that Paul's mission was to bring about the obedience after faith, mm-hmm. Such as, mm-hmm. like the discipline, things like yeah. that. And, uh-huh. and I think you mentioned, and I tend to agree with you, that it seems to me more that what, he, what his apostleship was was to bring about faith. As the obedience itself. Yes. So, yeah. so the goal, the initial goal is faith. Yes. And after you have faith, those other things certainly will flow, but I think that's the point of what he's saying. Faith is the starting point. Yeah. Yeah. Good. What else? He talked a little bit about um, he is the Son of God and he does have power. Mm-hmm. And so many ideas come in there that, well, he wasn't the Son of God before or mm-hmm. something like that. And he was always the Son of God, but then just after the resurrection was elevated to a higher power. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me uh, develop that a little bit more because uh, I was a little short on time uh, last week. Uh, the, we, we, talked, uh, uh, we talked at some length about the idea of the eternal sonship of Christ uh, which is what Debbie was referring to, that Christ was always in this relationship with the Father as the Son. Uh, and Scripture, I think, is pretty clear on that, uh, although not absolutely everybody agrees on that point. It seems pretty clear uh, that Christ has always been in this eternal relationship to the Father as the Son. 
so the question arose last week, well, what does he mean here when he says he was declared or he was made to be the Son of God by the resurrection? And, uh, and we talked about that. I don't want to go over all that again, but I, I did want to clarify or, or develop that a little bit more that Scripture actually speaks of three ways in which Christ is the Son of God. Okay, And uh, so uh, we really dealt with kind of two of them last week. But Scripture speaks of Christ as... Uh, and and we, we could think of somebody as the Son, particularly in... In ancient history, the idea of somebody being someone's son could carry several meanings. One is it could simply mean somebody who was born to someone, who was physically or naturally born uh, descendant of somebody. So we would say they were so-and-so's son. That's pretty obvious, okay? Uh, and then you would also have, you also have, and we do this today even, uh, that we talk about somebody is like somebody's son. And what that means is that they're in a relationship with someone, so they may not be actually physically uh, their descendant, but they're in a relationship with them, whether where it's like a father and a son relationship, and maybe in fact it's closer closer than a normal father son relationship. So you have those that are naturally sons. You have those who are who have a relationship of sons, and then you have, and this is particularly true in ancient history uh, and and New Testament history. Uh, you have the idea of somebody, uh, a son is, is somebody who's in a special or privileged or honored position. Okay. Uh, so sometimes even in, uh, in, uh, in Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture, uh, somebody might adopt someone as their son who was a full-grown adult. Okay. And the idea was to elevate them to a position of honor and, and respect and that sort of thing. So you have those three ideas of sonship, relationship, natural birth, and honor, okay? With Christ, he has always been in that relation of son to father. Eternally, that relationship has always existed within the Trinity. Uh, the second thing is the Scripture talks about Christ uh, becoming the son of God through that birth process uh, with Mary. So Luke speaks about him, uh, this, this process happening, and then says, for this reason, he will be called the son of God. So we call him the Son of God because he was born the Son of God through Mary. And then also, and the point that Paul is getting to here in Romans, is the idea of he is elevated to the idea of the place of sonship. He's elevated to this place of particular honor and regard among human beings as the ruler and Lord of all the earth to whom, all, uh, to whom every knee will bow. And that's a process that happens as a result of his atonement, of his self-sacrificing uh, offering of himself at the cross, and it begins then with the resurrection and ultimately his ascension and his exalt- his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. So, so the Scripture talks about him in all three of those senses, and I wanted to develop that a little bit last week, and I didn't have time to do that. What else did we talk about last week? There's another when someone follows the pattern of someone else's lifestyle, oh, okay, yeah. Think of them as, you know, yeah, son of, yeah, good. And we see that also play out. Sure, yeah. Yeah, great, good. Anything else before we go on? All that that you wrote. All that, okay, yeah, yeah all that, yeah. For those of you who weren't here, uh, the reason for this diagram on the board here is that, as I mentioned. 
the first sentence of Romans is seven verses long. So you have all these subsequent clauses and phrases and prepositional phrases. And, and so our, uh, the idea of this diagram was to try and take that first sentence and figure out where everything connected to everything else so we could make sense out of it. So that's why we have that diagram up there was an effort to figure out how all these different things that he says in that first sentence relate to one another. And so we worked on that uh, through the whole class period. But that explains those notes up there. Well, as I mentioned, the, uh, uh, the typical letter that was written from one person to another in the Greco-Roman world uh, consisted, first of all, of, a, of an introductory sentence. And in this introductory sentence, the writer of the letter would first identify himself and then second, he would identify the people to whom he was or the person to whom he was writing the letter. And then third, he would give some kind of a pleasant greeting or whatever. OK, and uh, that was typically all within the first sentence of a letter, sometimes the first two or three sentences. But it was typically very brief. Uh, Paul here makes one uh, gives us an opening uh, here that's uh, exceptionally long for a letter in the Greco-Roman world of that day. But it began, as we saw, the first six verses is primarily that first part of that typical opening, which is identifying himself. He identifies himself, but he doesn't just simply identify himself by name. But he, as you can see, he describes himself. He describes who he is and what he's about and and who he's serving and what he's trying to. So this is a, this is a thorough identification of who Paul is. And the reason for that, as has been mentioned, is because he's writing these people he's never seen before. Uh, they've only heard of him, but but they've never met. And he's beginning. He's 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 getting ready to lay out for them uh, a very thorough uh, presentation of certain aspects of this gospel that he preaches. And and he wants to establish his credentials. He wants them to understand why he thinks he has uh, the authority to say the things he says and. And uh, whether or not his, these things he says have any merit or any uh, basis in truth. And he wants them to understand that. So he goes into this elaborate explanation of who he is and what he's all about. And, and that's what we had in uh, the verses that we looked at last week. So finally, at the end of the sentence in verse seven, he comes to the second uh, to the last two parts of the typical opening, which is he identifies his recipients and then he gives his greeting. Uh, 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 and uh, so that's what we see in verse 7 where he says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints grace and peace uh, from, uh, to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he identifies to whom he is writing. And he is writing to these people in the city of Rome. Now Rome was a remarkable place. Uh, I dare to say that even though we are, you know, we all live in this modern age with all our high tech tools and toys and, and sophisticated uh, uh, ideas and our uh, and our transportation and our huge tall skyscrapers and all that thing. I dare to say that even though all that is true, if you and I were somehow to be transported in Calvin's uh, transmogrifier or whatever back to, uh, for those of you who don't read Calvin and Howes, I'm sorry that went over your head. Uh, but uh, we're transported back to ancient Rome 
and walked the cities of ancient Rome, I dare think you would be impressed. It was an incredible city. Uh, it was called, even before this day, it was called the Eternal City. Uh, it, in fact, had not been built in a day. It had been founded about 800 years before that and grew to be the city that it ultimately came over a period of 100 years and then finally became uh, the capital of a, of a massive great empire, the greatest empire in world history to its day. And so it's this remarkable city that started out and was thought to be the eternal city, the city that would go on forever that, and, and whose empire would endure forever. Of course, we find that was a slight overestimation. But this is how people, particularly Romans, viewed their own city. But not only Romans, but people all over the world had this just uh, a remarkable impression of the city of Rome. So even though uh, if you lived in that day, chances are you were not a Roman citizen and chances are you were not particularly an inhabitant of the city of Rome. You probably would have lived out somewhere in one of the other nations that Rome had subsequently or eventually subdued, but you lived out in one of these other nations and, uh, and you, you probably would never get but a few miles uh, unless you were a, a, a very prosperous businessman or a politician or someone like that. You would probably never get more than just a few miles from your home, but you would know about Rome. And when someone mentioned the city of Rome, in your mind, certain things would be conjured up. Certain ideas would come to your mind. It was this great city, the capital of the empire. Now, when we think of cities today, as we think of some of the great cities of the world, typically if they are mentioned, certain things come to our minds. So, for example, if I mention to you the city of Paris... What comes to your mind? The Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower, okay. What else? Versailles. What do we associate the city of Paris with? Pardon? Romance, okay. Excuse me? Elegance, fashion, art, cuisine. Yeah. We think of, when we think of Paris, we think of culture, don't we? We just associate Paris with culture. When you think of Hong Kong, what do you think of? Pardon? Technology. What else? Pardon? Trade. Okay. Industry, economy, business. It's just thriving. If you've ever been to Hong Kong, it just makes your head spin. You just, you just all around are these, you know, huge buildings and skyscrapers and all this business and economy and and things, then uh, it's just a remarkable economic uh, center. Uh, when you think of New York, what do you think of? Stupid <laughs> No more 32-ounce Cokes. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you think of Amsterdam, Heathen. Okay. Now, actually, Amsterdam is kind of like Hong Kong in many ways, economically and so forth. But typically, at least for those of us in the more conservative West, uh, when we think of Amsterdam, it often is associated with 
with much of the immorality that goes on there and the uh, the embracing of, of the kinds of lifestyles that we would find uh, actually repulsive, even though it really is a very great, very in many ways like Paris, very artistic, very cultured, that sort of thing. Oftentimes, those are not the things that are the first things that come to our mind when we think of Amsterdam. When you think of Washington, D.C., what do you think of? Liars. Liars. <laughs> you can tell she was in Washington last week. <laughs> okay, what else? Power. Power, okay. Uh, power not only on a national level, right, but on an international level. The decisions that get made in Washington, D.C. have an impact around the world. Not just economically, but militarily and, and in many other ways. So, so these are all the various things. When we think of various cities around the world, these are some of the things that come to our mind. Now... Imagine a city in the ancient world that when the city, the name of the city was mentioned, all of those things come to your mind. All of those things come to your mind. That's Rome. In its day, a gigantic city. Probably in the first century, although we're not sure, and there's arguments about it back and forth, but probably in the first century, a population exceeding over one million people. Okay? This is one million people without cars and taxi cabs and buses and iPads and computers and, and, and uh, uh, modern uh, indoor toilets, although they did have indoor toilets, uh, uh, not certainly like we had today, and they, they did have some pretty sophisticated plumbing and things like that. But you have a million people living together within the general vicinity of Rome. Uh, like our own Oklahoma City here, it's, you have Oklahoma City and then you have all the suburbs and the environs. Well, you had that with Rome, of course, as well. But you have somewhere probably in a million or more people. 90% of those people lived in what we would think of as apartments. Okay? So rather than everybody having their own private home like we tend to have today, the majority of uh, Americans, particularly living here in the Midwest, as we do, uh, the majority of these people lived in uh, apartment buildings. And, of course, they didn't have all the building codes and, and sort of things that we have today to protect uh, the tenants of, of apartment buildings or homes. So you can imagine the condition of some of these apartment buildings that they lived in. Now, when I talk about apartment buildings, we're not talking about high-rise structures or things like this. But these were multiple dwelling places, typically very small apartments that people lived in. Okay, 90% of these 1 million people lived in places like that. The other 10% owned uh, their own private homes, kind of standalone homes as we would think of today. And those might uh, vary from uh, something that's fairly modest uh, or meager in style to the vast villas and emperor's homes and those sorts of things that you would have. So you have this wide variety. But when we get to the end of, the, of Romans and we begin reading about all these people that Paul's sending greetings to, occasionally we will read about those who had the church meeting in their home. What does that tell you about those people? Pardon? Okay, they're probably pretty high up in the social class, okay? They're, they're, they're well off enough. They're in the top 10% of, of the people within uh, economically or socially within the city of Rome. People who had homes large enough that they could have a church meeting in their home. So this is the, 
This is the city of Rome. It is the, it is the city which people all over the empire, whatever they thought of, of Rome's coming in and conquering and, and that sort of thing, and of course, uh, particularly uh, because we're so familiar with the Gospels and we're so familiar with the story in Palestine, we're very, we're very keenly aware of the resistance uh, that Rome encountered in some places. But, but that was not true across the board. And, and one of the things that stands out about Rome and about the Roman Empire is something that's called the Pax Romana. What was the Pax Romana? Does anybody know? The Peace of Rome, okay? The one thing that Rome managed to do as it conquered all these nations and brought them into its empire is it managed to establish throughout that whole Mediterranean world that was the Roman Empire, it managed to establish a peace and a tranquility among nations that had not ever existed. They, you know, you always had these nations going to war with one another, kind of like Europe in the, you know, in the, in the 16, 17, 18, 1900s until you begin to develop uh, the ideas of democracy and so that sort of thing in Europe and you begin to finally see some kind of uh, friendship and cooperation between the European nations in the last 50 years or so. That's quite unusual as far as European history is concerned. Uh, but, but you have the same situation in the ancient world and as Rome begins to spread its power and its influence this Pax Romana begins to spread and there's a tranquility and there's a peace among peoples that they've not been able to experience before. And so what would that then enable or make possible to happen when you have that kind of a finally peace between peoples? Spread the gospel. Well, spread the gospel, but you're getting ahead of me. Sorry. Well, what, what would you spread before you spread the gospel? Commerce. Okay, commerce. So there's an economic prosperity and there's a commercial prosperity. Uh, taking place and, and there's uh, there's communication, there's interaction going on that never went on before. So it was a remarkable time in which to live. Uh, the the city of Rome, one, one writer, a guy by the name of Stephen Neal, a bishop, Stephen Neal wrote, he says it was the fount of law, the center of civilization. It was the mecca of poets and orators and artists. He goes on to say later, it was a home of every kind of idolatry. And of course, we know that it was also, there was all kinds of rampant uh, immorality. You had, you had uh, on one hand, you had remarkable sophistication uh, coupled with just incredible brut murderous brutality. Uh, we think of the Colosseum or the circus in Rome and the things that they were associated with. You have this city that's just filled with remarkable architecture. And just mentioned the Colosseum. Uh, shortly, about 20 years after Paul wrote this letter, was the construction of, of Titus's Ark, which was to commemorate the defeat of the Jews uh, by the Romans in 780. So there's a remarkable ark that still stands today, and you can go and see it. For those of you who've been to Rome, you've traveled in Rome, uh, you've seen the remarkable architecture. All of this stuff is going on together um, with these million or so people. Uh, you, uh, uh, the people who are there represent all social classes. You have the emperor, you have everything from the emperor down to slaves, a significant portion. I forget what the percentage was, but a significant percentage of the population were simply slaves. Many of those slaves had been brought to Rome from other parts of the world. They were the results of, 
of Rome coming in and conquering various nations and they would take some of the population of those nations and they would bring them back to Rome and they would sell them as slaves. And so you have a very dense population of slaves in Rome. So you have this wide social spectrum. You have politicians and you have tradesmen and you have uh, all kinds of businessmen and people traveling to and from Rome to all the parts of the Roman Empire and beyond. All of this going on in this remarkable, remarkable city. And in this city, you have a special group of people. Some of them come from the higher class and some of them come from among the slaves. But they are a very special group of people because Paul says they are beloved of God. And they are called as saints. So among this vast cosmopolitan hubbub of a city that was Rome, you have a small minority of people, and we don't know how many at this point, but we have this small minority of people who are people of whom Paul says the infinite creator of the universe has entered into a special, intimate, affectionate love relationship. Of all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people representing uh, many of the nations of the world and representing all kinds of idolatry and pagan worship and pagan practices, you have a handful of people who are loved by God. Now, not that God doesn't love all of them. John 3.16 is very clear that God loves the whole world. But the scriptures are also clear that those uh, those who are gods are loved by him in a very special way. And there are in Rome some people like that. Who this great God who spun the heavens in place by the word of his mouth. And who holds the heavens in the palm of his hand. Is a personal, intimate God who loves his people. And Paul is writing to that special group of people whom he also says are called as saints. Now, there's not much that offends... Well, yeah, there is probably. But I was going to say there's not much offends me more than this, but there probably is. There's probably a lot of things offending me more than this. But one thing that really offends me is the idea that saints are kind of this special, elite, super spiritual group of people. But the scriptures are clear that everybody who is a child of God is a saint. What does the word saint mean? Pardon? Set apart. Okay. Holy. Okay. It's the same word we use, which is often translated holy, is here translated as saints. And the idea of holy or saints is set apart. Okay. And so here, among all these hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million people 
walking the streets of Rome and dodging the carts and horses and all that sort of thing and engaged in all the commerce and business and politics and, and corruption and everything that's going on and art and poetry and, and architecture and all these, of all these hundreds of thousands of people that are engaged in all of these things, there is a group of people who are set apart. In what way are they set apart? What are they set apart from or to? Two believers. Okay, they're, they're true believers, okay. But if you're set apart, that implies what? I know, I'm asking a lousy question. I can't get the answer I want here. What? Pardon? A purpose, okay. Okay. Uh, Okay, you're special, but, but it implies that you're separated from something, right? From them. You're separated from them. You are separated from all of this. From all this thing we described that's going on, there is some way in which these people are set apart. Now, they may be engaged, as, we, as we'll see. Some of them were involved in the high levels of politics. Some of them were slaves. Uh, they were involved in all this stuff that was going on commercially and culturally and that sort of thing. But there's some sense in which they are set apart. They are separated from. But the word saint implies not only that we're separated from something, and we are called to be separate from the world, but we are also called to be separated to something. What are we separated to? We're separated to God, aren't we? We're separated to this one who loves us. He has loved us and he has set us apart. He has lifted us up out of the hubbub that is this world, both its good and its evil. He has taken us up out of that and he has made us a special people. Just for him. And those are the people to whom Paul is writing. And what does he say he wishes for them? Grace and peace. Okay. Now he's writing. Now, typically, when we think of God's grace, we think of probably the first thing that comes to mind is our salvation, right? And when we think of peace, one of the first things we think of is in the context of Scripture, we think of peace with God, which, of course, we experienced at salvation, right? But here, Paul is writing to people who are already believers, right? And to these people who are already believers, his desire is that they would experience grace and peace. Implied in that, folks, is that getting saved isn't the end. It's just the beginning. Okay? And the experience of God's grace is only begins at salvation. Now, oftentimes we have a very truncated view of grace. We Typically, we have this, you know, we think, well, grace is unmerited favor. But the word grace caught us there in the Greek, okay, has really a wide sense of meaning. It's actually translated several different ways. Uh, in Scripture, depending on the context, sometimes it's uh, translated as gift, sometimes translated as grace, 
uh, sometimes translated as favor or whatever. But it, so it has a broad sense of meaning. And Paul here is probably using it in that broad sense that what he wants this very special group of people in this great cosmopolitan city of Rome, this, this little minority of people whom God has loved and called and set apart as saints to these special people, what he wants them to do, he want, what he wants them to experience, excuse me, is he wants them to be experiencing the favor of God. And he wants them to be experiencing peace. Not just the peace of, with God that they now have because their sins are forgiven and they are no longer enemies of God, but that that peace here again is probably like the word grace is probably Paul is using it in a very general sense. The idea of emotional and mental tranquility. Tranquility of heart and tranquility of mind. How many Christians do you know or do I know who don't know peace? I had the opportunity uh, in the last week or so to have interaction with a a woman who's a believer. Uh, And yet the thing that struck me about this woman is how troubled she was and how fearful she was. And she was always troubled about things and she's She's constantly fearful of things. And she's, she's at a point in her life where she's beginning to grow and she's beginning to change. So she's very cognizant of that now, how fearful she is. And she's always paranoid that somebody's going to be taking advantage of her or exploiting her or some, in some way. And of course, you know, those are things we do need to be careful about and cognizant of. But God did not call us to live paranoid lives. God did not call us to live lives where we are constantly in turmoil and troubled. He's called us to peace. So I think the peace here reflects that, but it also reflects Paul's desire that there would be peace in their relationships. And he's going to address some of that as we go through the book of Romans. Because there are some things, and I don't think there was all-out war going on in the church, but there were things that would tend to disrupt the peace of the church. And Paul's going to address those things. He's going to talk about this issue of Jew and Gentile. And he's going to talk about the issue of the strong versus the weak, etc., etc., etc. So he's going to address all those things with the hope that he, can, that he can serve the purpose of bringing about camaraderie and peace and unity within the body of Christ. These are the things that Paul desires. And all of this is just included in his introduction and we haven't even gotten to the beginning of the the letter and all the things that he has to say. So then he begins in verse 8 and he says what? What does he say first? Trick question, folks. First. (laughs) First, okay. And when you see the word first, what's one of the things you instinctively look for? There's a second. Well, there is no second, folks. Okay? There's no second here, okay? So he's not starting a list. What he's doing here simply is saying, the first thing I want to mention before we go into everything else, this is where I want to start. And where does he want to start? By giving thanks for them. You know, I wonder where we would get in our relationships <laughs> if whenever we dialogued with somebody, the first thing we did was we 
express gratitude for them. You know, Paul's going to write some heavy stuff, and he's, you know, he's going to be at some points kind of gently, but nevertheless somewhat critical of them in places or challenging them or whatever. Uh, but he starts by by assuring them that he is thankful for them. It is the starting point. And, and as we read many of Paul's letters, we see that's characteristic of Paul. That's his starting point with people. I mean, when, when we read Corinthians, we realize, we realize he's really dealing with some messed up people. He's really dealing with some messed up. When he writes Galatians, he's dealing with some messed up people. Right? Are you grateful for the messed up people in your life? Up to you, yeah. So, Paul starts out with this Thanksgiving, and really, it's kind of instructive. This, I was just thinking, the first thing that he that he wants to say is how thankful he is. The first thing he does when he thinks about them is he thanks God for them. And I was thinking, how actually, that's a uh, that is a that is a uh, that is a characteristic that we ought to have in our prayers, not just regarding people. But it's, but it's instructed me, as Psalmist says in Psalms 104, he says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Oftentimes when we enter God's gates, the first thing we have is a list, right, of things we need. Right. But I think the general pattern, for now this is not exclusive, and if you don't always do this, you know, you're not, your prayer will not go unanswered or whatever. But I think the general pattern for prayer is it should always begin with thanksgiving and praise. Now, there are times when things are urgent and we need, you know, something comes up and we, we need to make our request known and God has commanded us to do that and He desires us to do that. He's eager to hear our requests and our needs to make our needs known to Him. But it will transform your prayer life if you are not in the habit of doing it. It will transform your prayer life if you make a habit of beginning prayer with thanksgiving and praise. And, as we see with the Romans here, it may transform your relationships if you do the same. Of course, when somebody starts out by, <clears throat> by praising me and thanking me, <clears throat> I always wonder when the next shoe is going to drop. <laughs> but, but if we are sincere, as Paul obviously is, it can go a long way into opening our communication and our relationships. So Paul is grateful for them. And there's something specific that he's thankful about them. And what is that? Okay. Their faith is famous. <laughs> and Paul says it's being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, uh, most commentators assume, and I do too, of course, that he's using hyperbole here. I kind of have my doubts that their fame was being heard in uh, you know, in Alaska or South America or, you know, places of far distance where the gospel had not been preached. But he's probably speaking here in terms of the Roman world or the, the known world. And, and he's traveled a good part of that world himself and he knows people who have traveled a good part of that world. And so within the context of the, of the known world or the Roman world, the faith of the Romans is known. It's being told. Now, I'm assuming 
And, and uh, some commentators see this, and I may be presumptuous here, but I'm assuming primarily what he's talking about is among the believers. Among the believers all over the world, it's being reported that there are believers in Rome. And I'm really glad for that. I'm thanking God for that. Now, why is he so thankful for that? Why does it matter to Paul that the faith of the Romans is being proclaimed all over the world? Okay. Okay. He's wanting to go to Rome. He's wanting to use Rome as his new staging area so he can go on to Spain. So this is kind of encouraging that that Rome's already having an effect around the world. What else? I think it's encouraging that even if the gospel penetrates the hearts of people in Rome, that there's something to it that is Okay, when you think about the Rome we've just described here this morning, it's kind of encouraging to think the gospel can begin to penetrate that environment, isn't it? What else? Okay, okay. And one of the things I think about is, you know, God, and I don't know how God makes these decisions, but... God takes some believers and He just puts them in a place of influence, doesn't He? And some of us, we're just house painters. You know, that's all we are. You know, But some of us, He puts some believers, for reasons only He knows, He puts in places of influence. And when I hear of believers who are practicing and speaking their faith in Hollywood, or who are practicing and speaking their faith in the halls of Congress, or who are practicing and speaking their faith in other places of influence, I'm encouraged. I'm glad God's doing that. And I'm thankful for that. Because I know then that that even though this is a pagan environment in which these people operate every day, that God has his light and he's working. And this news about Rome is being spread throughout the whole world and believers all over the world are being encouraged by what God is doing in the city of Rome. And Paul is thankful for that. And then he goes on And he says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. And so then he goes on to talk about how much he's praying for the Romans. Now, really, at this point, he only mentions one specific request, which really isn't so much a request for the Romans. It is it is in one sense, but it's primarily a request for himself. But whenever he thinks of the Romans, unceasingly he prays for them. Now, by unceasingly, that doesn't mean that Paul never did anything but pray. He did eat. He did preach. He did sleep. You know, uh, he did, you know, fix tents and build tents. And, you know, he did all these other things. But Paul's life was one of constancy in prayer. That he was continually at every opportunity he could find, taking the opportunity to pray. And one of the things that Paul prayed for was the people 
all over the world of whom he was aware were God's people, God's beloved, and God's saints. And Paul would pray for them. And when I read letter after letter after letter that Paul writes and read what he says about praying for these people, I feel a little ashamed. You know, and I think, my goodness, what an example. Now, you know, Paul had an advantage that we don't have. I'll use this excuse, okay, but it's not an excuse. Is that he lived in a different world. So when Paul needed to go from Philippi to Thessalonica, he didn't fly and he didn't drive. He walked. And when he walked, I assumed he prayed. And, you know, maybe that's a lesson that if we're too busy to pray, maybe we're just too busy. If our life is moving too fast to pray, maybe we're just moving too fast. I I don't know the answer to all those questions, but it is striking how much Paul prayed for people. And he says, I don't stop. I do it unceasingly. And I'm praying unceasingly for you guys in Rome. And one of the things I'm praying for is what? That I can come to you. I want to come to you. I want to see you. Why does he want to see them? Oh, before we go to that. Now, I'm not going to take time for that. Why does he want to see them? Okay, he wants, he says, to impart to them some spiritual gift. In verse 11. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. Now, what he has in mind here is apparently not uh, a, a ministry gift. You know, we think of the ministry gifts like of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, uh, so it's not that he wants to come and somehow be the means by which they receive a ministry gift. That's not what he has in mind. But, he, but there again, the word is grace or caught us. He just wants to be a means of spiritual encouragement and blessing to them. How do I know that's what he means? Well, because in verse 12, he expects them to reciprocate in the same way. So clearly, it's not that he, it's not that he's wanting them to impart to him some ministry gifts. He's already got his, his set of gifts, whatever they are. He has those. He's been exercising them now for many years. He's not needing some ministry gift. He's just needing the mutual spiritual encouragement that will come from our fellowship. So that's what he wants to do for them. He wants to come and he says later in another place, he says, I I want to bear fruit among you. Paul just wants to come to Rome because he wants to bless them. He wants to be a source of blessing and encouragement in their lives so that they are strengthened, so that they are made steadfast. Now those people living in Rome that city we just described. They really need to be steadfast, don't they? Just like you and I. Because we all live in our own Rome, don't we? We live in a pagan world. We live in a pagan culture. You know, it has its Christian trappings, but it is a pagan culture. It has always been a pagan culture. And we live in the middle of it. And we need encouragement so that we will be steadfast. And Paul wants to come to Rome and he just wants to be the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit pours out his caudus, his grace upon the Roman believers so that they will be steadfast 
in this polluted and evil world in which they live. And then he does this interesting thing, and the the uh, common, several commentators pick up on this, and it's it's not so obvious in the English. I think it's a little more obvious in the Greek, apparently. <laughs> but in verse 12, he kind of backtracks. Because in verse 11, he's talking about what he wants to do for them. And then it's almost like he goes, oh, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about me for them. you know. But really, I need encouragement. And I need them. So this is the great Apostle Paul, commissioned by Christ himself on the Damascus Road, who says, I need encouragement. I need help being steadfast. And so he, he kind of backtracks as if, well, that, that might have sounded a little pompous. I want you to know what I really mean. What I really mean is I re- I, we need mutual encouragement. We need to be encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. And one of the things that's really cool, and you can look at this in, in Acts chapter 28, when he finally does get to Rome, which is about three or four years after this, because he runs into some problems. <laughs> but he finally gets to Rome, and when he comes to Rome the first time, he comes as what? A prisoner. Okay, So he comes as a prisoner. But he's coming to Rome as he's approaching Rome. And you can read about this in Acts 28. As he's approaching Rome, the news reaches Rome and reaches the Roman believers that he's coming. What do they do? They come out to meet him. They come out of the city to meet him. So here comes Paul the prisoner, the apostle of Christ, the slave of Christ, set apart for the gospel. And here he's coming, walking into Rome. Okay, with a with a soldier escort because he's a prisoner and he's coming into Rome and they come out to meet him. And in Acts 28, it says. Paul took courage when he saw them. He took courage. He was encouraged by these Roman believers when he saw them. You know, I. I never thought of that the way I did the last couple of days as I was thinking about that verse. When Paul got to Rome, he was nervous. When Paul got to Rome, he was on edge. He was one, one thing, he was a prisoner, and he was going to be before, standing before Caesar. He certainly had a thing or two to be nervous about. But I imagine that he's coming into this great city that he's heard about his whole life, and he himself is a Roman citizen, but he's never been to Rome, and he's coming into this city, and this is the, this is the opportunity he's waited for all his life. This is the thing he's wanted to do for, for so many years, is to come in and to preach the gospel and see fruit in this city. And here he is now on the, on the, on the threshold of the city as he's coming into this city and now the rubber meets the road. Will he succeed or will he fail? And, and any human being facing those circumstances is going to be a little nervous. And Paul comes into this as he's approaching this city And he sees those believers come out to greet him. And he takes courage. And he goes on into the city. And Acts 28 tells us about the marvelous ministry he had for the next two years there in the city of Rome. Tremendous story. Tremendous man. But what a tremendous God.
Okay? Next week, we'll go on.